Hello and welcome to the Downtown Drash, a podcast exploring the weekly parasha. My name is Dr. Michal Bitan and I am the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my podcast co-host and colleague Rabbi Joe Wolfson, JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center at NYU. Today we are recording some thoughts on the double Torah portion of Chukat Balak. So Rabbi Joe, we have two parashiot today. Um, let's start with a summary of Chukat. Hey Michal, yeah. Let's go for Chukat. Chukat is probably one of my favorite parashiot. It begins chapter 19 of the book of Bamidbar with the description of the para aduma, the red heifer, the special unique calf, whose role is to provide purification from tumat met, the ritual impurity that is contracted from interaction with the dead. It's then followed in chapter 20 with a move from halakha, from law to narrative, and we begin with the death of Moshe's sister Miriam and the people complaining about a lack of water in the aftermath of her death. So then we have the famous story of Moshe striking the rock and in return for that both he and Aharon, his brother, are told that they are not going to enter the land since they did not sanctify God's name. This is this terrible tragedy that Moshe and Aharon have led the people all the way through the desert but will not enter the land. After that, we read how Moshe immediately picks up, sends messengers to the king of Edom asking that the Jewish people be granted safe passage. They're refused, battle ensues, and Israel are victorious. And that chapter concludes with the death of Aharon, it's very moving description of Moshe taking him up the mountain and burying him and the people mourning for 30 days. And the parsha uh, concludes with more battles with the king of Arad, with Sichon and with Og, in which once again Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, are victorious. And in the middle of those battles we have the strange, perplexing story of a plague of copper snake which Moshe creates which all who look at it are cured. So that is Parshat Hukat. Wow, uh, it's a busy parasha, and it's interesting. <laughs> and it's only half of what we're going to do. I know, do. it's only half. And it's interesting that you said it's one of your favorite parashiot. I find it to contain one of the most tragic moments, actually, in, in the Torah, in the journey of the Israelites in the desert, right? We have this episode in which the people are thirsty for water and they complain and Moshe, uh, you know, turns to Hashem and Hashem says, speak to the rock. Moshe hits the rock. And from kindergarten, we are taught because Moshe, kind of like what Rashi says, right? Because Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe is punished and he cannot go to the promised land. He will die in the in the desert. And I think that, um, I don't know about you, right, Joe, this episode, I, I, I find it really difficult on an emotional level. And on an intellectual level, and you know, theological, let's just add to it, to understand how could it be that that through this action, which doesn't seem that awful to me, and we can really tease it out and talk about it, Moshe is then destined to not see the promised land. Well, um, if I can start with something which might sound a bit light and humorous, uh, I don't think there's any contradiction at all between you finding it uh, sad and depressing and uh, me make, saying it's one of my favorite uh, 
Parchiot. It may be your maybe your British. Uh, well, exactly, exactly. M- my taste in in uh, in film, in music, in 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 books I like to read, and also in Parchiot is uh, one which goes for the the darker um, parts. So <laughs> I don't know if it's connected to being British. Perhaps who knows? Your your sunny uh, South American disposition uh, puts you in <laughs> a different place, perhaps. But but in in, in all seriousness. I love Parshat Hukat, and in particular this episode, because yes, of course, it's so tragic, but I think it uh, really contains within it some of the most powerful and significant messages. So, what one one part of it is is this reading, which will sound really strange the first time you hear it, and that is that. Moshe does not die because he strikes the rock. He doesn't. He's not banned from entering the land from because he strikes the rock, but rather actually for something else, all altogether. There's this quote of Kafka, Franz Kafka, who uh, who was very ill. He died at a young age. A great author, and he writes in his diary at a certain point when he's very ill. He says Moshe, or Moses, does not enter the promised land is not unable to enter the promised land because his life is too short, but it's because his life is a human life. In other words, there's just something fundamental about being human, which means you can't enter into the promised land. You can't achieve everything. And it sounds like an outrageous and incorrect reading. And then, you know, later on, I found a Midrash which more or less says that. A Midrash which reads that Moshe goes up the mountain at the end of his life and says to Hashem, Lama animit, why am I dying? And he then tries to strike a bargain with God. And he says, you know, perhaps I should just go into the land even if I'm not the leader and the people will see me and they'll be able to see Jewish people's history by seeing me in the flesh. And God silences him. And says to Moshe, It's a decree, it's a, it's a difficult phrase to translate, it's a decree before me. Which is equal before all people. This is the Torah, this is the law of a person who dies in a tent. Actually, a verse from early on in our parasha. In other words, all, all people need need to die. And the Midrash carries on with the angels asking God, why is it that uh, Moshe was not able to enter into the land? And God saying to them, it is a decree equal before all people. And that idea that Moshe has to die because, not because of any sin he's done wrong, not because of any, any error, but simply because his life is a human life. I find that so powerful. But, but Rabbi John, let me ask you, I, I, I am moved and it's really poignant by this reflection on, uh, on mortality and Moshe really representing this. But, but it doesn't answer the question, why does he have to die in the desert? Ah, good. So I think that the deeper reading of the Midrash is as follows. It's not just that we all die. It's that we all die with unfulfilled ambitions. That 
you will never get 10 out of 10. That to be human means to, by definition, live with an imperfect set of achievements. And that sounds so upsetting at first. It sounds so deflating. But actually, I think in some ways it's, 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 it's so real, it's so genuine. I also think it's really empowering because it then frees you up to do the rest of the things that, that matter right. for you. And it's interesting. I was having a conversation this morning with, with a colleague about how, uh, how history judges us and how God judges us. And there's something here that I think, um, like through this Midrash, that offers this theological gaze in which Hashem says from the beginning, I'm going to judge you knowing that you're not going to get to the promised land and knowing that as a human being, you are imperfect and, and this is who you're supposed to be, right? You're not the angels, you're even Moshe. Right, even Moshe, Moshe who took the people out of Egypt, who brought the Torah down from, 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 from Har Sinai. I think the thing of also of an of a interreligious polemic here that this Midrash is written in the early centuries of, uh, of the Common Era, in which the, the new rival to Judaism has a, a figure who is at its heart, who is seen as, um, as, as not dying. And you know, Moshe, in contrast to that, is not a god. Moshe, for all his brilliance, remains human in a way in which we are all human. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's not only a polemic with with uh, you know with Christianity. I think generally just the idea that our the the holy heroes of the Torah, um, Moshe dies in the desert. We don't have his his grave. We 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 can memorialize him through statues. You know, now that our 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 country is talking about statues and how we remember people, um, there's something very powerful here and also deeply political about the memory of human beings and how. They're meant to be uh, preserved. You know, Rabbi Joel, when you talk about mortality, um, I keep thinking not only about Moshe's death, but about Miriam's right. death. Right, it's a chapter in which all three of them die. Or... Yeah, but I want to focus on Miriam for a second because it is Miriam's death that then prompts the people to not have water and to ask water and to complain in a, in a really bad way, uh, accusing Moshe and Aaron. And that really brings about this whole episode in which, at least when I read it, I, I sense Moshe's angst and desperation and frustration with the people and with the situation. And I can't help but want to look at Moshe not only as this leader that's competing with the angels to see if he gets to live or die, but also as just um, a human being, a brother who lost the closest person he has to a mother, I guess Miriam, uh, and and he's not just leading his people, he's also mourning personally. And there's something very, I think there's something really difficult about having to mourn your sister and, and also confront the national crisis at the same time. Wow, wow, what a great reading. And, and it's not as if she's any old sister, is it? I mean, she is the older sister who has, you know, stood by the River Nile when he's a, a tiny baby to, you know, check that he'll that he survives and, and, and that he's, he's okay. Yes, and I, I don't know why I always associate Miriam with a certain expression, like ability to express yourself, whether it's the midrash of her, you know, talking to her dad 
whether it's her convincing Batia to save Moshe, according to the Midrash, um, no, no, the Pshat actually, whether it's um, her leading the woman in, in, in dancing when they see the Egyptians drowning in, um, in, in, the, in the waters. But there's something about her kind of representing this expressiveness and Moshe being someone who stutters and who has difficulty expressing himself. And now when, when Miriam is taken away, it's almost like he, he, uh, he, hits, he hits the rock. Um, he, he cannot, does not talk to it. Um, but, but yeah. Is what you're saying that it's not just that he's in mourning for her, which he is, but that this, this may well cloud his response to the moment. He's unable to do whatever it is he should do in terms of talking to the people through this difficult moment, this lack of water, because he's suffered his own personal tragedy. Yes, suffered his own tragedy. And also Moshe was not alone. He was kind of prompted up by, prompted up by his siblings. He had that support. So there's something very difficult about being a leader while you're trying to deal with, you know, with your own personal loss and kind of being asked to, at the moment when you want to cry that your your sister has passed, you have to deal with this, people begging you, but not in a great way for um, for water. But you know, Rabbi Joe, I, I, I love the Midrash that you shared because I share with you this perspective that doesn't necessarily focus on Moshe having sinned, but tries to understand why is it that he's told that he cannot enter the land. Uh, there's a midrash from Telchuma that I really like that has a, a similar valence in, in in that sense, but a different reading. And this midrash uh, makes a comparison. It compares Moshe to a shepherd and the people of Israel to to sheep. Uh, and, and basically, the way that I read the midrash, the the way that it concludes is that if the sheep are going to die in the desert, the shepherd cannot enter the land, right? There's something about the relationship between Moshe and his flock, Moshe and the people of Israel, that that they, they're inseparable and that it will be a failure of leadership of being a shepherd if you somehow enter the land and leave your, leave your flock behind. That, that's beautiful. And I think it connects to a discussion which we had, I think, at the beginning of Sefer Bamidbar for our podcast, which uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it was based around the introduction of the Nitziv to the, the Sefer, which says that the story of the, of the book of Bamidbar is the story of these two generations, the generation which left Egypt and the generation which is like God distinguishing between light and darkness. This is the, the book of Bamidbar. And if, if you plug the Midrash that you just quoted into that, it's not that just that Moshe is intimately entwined with his people it is in specifically that he is entwined with the generation that he led out of egypt brought to Har sinai it's this generation that he can't leave behind right so what you're saying is that that moshe was the leader for that generation and and, and he didn't have the same that same um, relationship with the with the new one yeah, there's something really, you know, all of, all of this discussion, it kind of, it kind of makes me wonder, there's something that feels almost like Hashem is um, not teasing Moshe, I don't know what the right word is, but it's like, is it, it, Moshe being told, oh, you did this, you didn't sanctify my name, hence you don't enter the land. Was there ever the possibility of Moshe entering the land, <laughs> right? Was there, could he ever enter, especially after the people are told they cannot go in? 
Or was this something that was going to happen no matter what? And this was just the moment in which the decree came about. Right. I, I guess, I, 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 yeah, I, I think it's so interesting. And I, I guess what, what I like to think about is to, to shift our gaze on this section actually a few verses later to what seems to be a less dramatic moment, but to me is even more so. And I think it, it wraps up a lot of the themes we've been talking about. Immediately after... Moshe and Aharon have been told that they will not go into the land. The very next verse is Vaishlach Moshe Malachim Mikadesh El Melech Edom. Moshe sends messages, messengers from the place where they are, Kadesh, to the king of Edom, saying, Let us pass through your land. And it seems to be like okay, the story is just, just moving on. But if you pause to think for a second. What would you have imagined Moshe's response to be to the news that his life goal of leading the people to to the land of Israel is, is not going to take place? I, I would have thought you know, he could resist, he could argue with God, maybe he'd have some sort of mental breakdown, okay, he's fine, so he's just going to stop and be buried right there. But instead he just gets straight on with the task. Yeah, he, I mean, he does argue, it's just later, right? He prays, right? He bangs Hashem. He also right. complains about the people, to the people. Says, because of you, Hashem isn't letting me enter the land, right? That's going to come in Sefer Devarim. But as we have it now in our parsha, it's presented as one piece. And there's this amazing midrash again, it's Tanchuma, really. Tanchuma for the win this week. Which quotes that verse of Moshe sending messengers. And it says, Banoheg Olam, what normally happens... The person enters into some sort of business deal, say, with a, with a, another person, and he loses. What then happens is that he leave, leaves the person who he'd entered into a partnership with. doesn't want to ever see him again. But Moshe, even though he's been punished because of Israel, they've tripped him up, as the Midrash puts it. He doesn't take their yoke, their weight from off of him. He, he, gets, he gets straight on, on with it. And I, I think, you know, I think it connects to the, this, the, the discussion that we had earlier. Once you realize that you can't achieve everything, then it frees you to up, frees you up to get on with, with the rest of, of the task. Right. I wonder if there's another additional layer to this, because uh, we, we don't know exactly at what time in the desert this episode happens, right? Uh, the chronology is not clear. Uh, I wonder if the people that Moshe is reacting in front of, this might also be people who have been, uh, who are going to die in the desert. So there might also be something human about this, like not wanting to, to resist Hashem in front of them. <laughs> and beg to go to the land of Israel when you talk in front of people who have also been condemned to die in the desert. And who perhaps, and this might be weird, but also dark, if we like darkness, maybe there's some comfort for them in knowing that their shepherd, their pastor, uh, is staying with them um, in the desert. That, that, wow, that, that, that's beautiful. And it, it, it takes me to a place, to a point which I'd never thought of before, but which I think is really sound. We, we started this podcast in at the beginning of Vayikra, 
If we had started it one book earlier at the beginning of Shemot, I'm sure that one of the major themes we would have spoken about was the difference, the otherness of Moshe compared to his people. He didn't have the experience of slavery. He, he grew up in the palace. And then for six terrible decades, whilst Amisro were enslaved, he was being a shepherd in in Midian. So much of his difficulty or, or just the nature of his relationship is that, you know, he, he is an outsider. But now, you know, many, many years later, actually he is sharing the same fundamental experience with his people that he is with them and as they, they are all going yeah. to... Yeah, that's really powerful. And, and and it leads me to wonder, you know, I, I always, again, I, I find that a really painful parasha, just the, the yearning really gets to me. Uh, but at the same time, I wonder, we don't often ask ourselves, what would our reaction be like if things would have been different, right? So what would it have felt like to read of Moshe's entry to the land of Israel with the people that he helped liberate from Egypt stayed you know, died in the desert. I think I think it there's something would have felt wrong about that. Um, about that dissonance between Moshe's journey into the promised land and and the fact that the people couldn't come with him. Um but but you know Rabbi Joe there's there's two parashiot um that, that we have uh, here. One was Chukat, the other one is Balak. Uh, is this another one of your favorite parashiot? You know, it also is, it definitely is another one of my favourite parashiot. And I, I, I have to say that I feel a certain sense of uh, frustration, rather not allowing us and all of the rest of the Jewish people to spend a whole week enjoying them for peace. Yeah, so it's this amazing story um, of um, the king of Moab, Balak, who sees Am Yisrael just being, as we saw at the end of Parashat Hukat, being victorious against all of the tribes in the area. And he thinks he needs to resort to, to some other uh, approach. And so he hires this, uh, this pagan sorcerer, Bil'am, to curse the Jewish people. And Bilam at first isn't sure if he should do it, and he asks God, but eventually he does. There's this wonderful story with his donkey who is able to see the angel, which is blocking the path between him, and Bilam is unable to see it. Um, and, you know, Bilam tries to curse the Jewish people. He's standing on the heights over them, tries to curse multiple times, is unable to uh, get any words out of his mouth. And when finally he is able to speak, rather than curses issuing forth from his mouth, it's actually brachot and blessings and beautiful things which are said about Israel and also of times to come and future redemption. And that, that's the story of, of, of Bilam. The parasha concludes on uh, a, a less uh, positive note with uh, the, 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 the nation of Moab, if it's been unable to intercept the Jewish people via uh, Bilam, sending their women uh, to the Jewish camp to entice uh, them to sin, which many of them do, resulting in a plague amongst the Jews, which only ends when Pinchas, after whom next week's parasha is going to uh, be named, rises up and kills two of the highest-ranking offenders, bringing the plague to an end. So that's Parshat Balak. Wow. Uh, intense. Uh, not only a lot of good narrative and, and drama, 
but but also I think there's something really fascinating about this parasha because it's almost like until now we are focused on the internal story of the Jewish people and the zoom lens of the movie we're watching or the book we're reading, whatever metaphor we're using, it's focused on the national experience uh, of the Jews to the extent that it feels like that's all there is and that's all that God cares about and that's all we are supposed to care about as we read the Torah. And this I is think that's like... great. It's, it's the camera angle. That's right. The camera angle shifts dramatically. It's no longer an internal story. It's an external one. It, it both shifts and also zooms out. And suddenly it's like, whoa, there's this whole other world out there. There's this other prophet. <laughs> like we're talking about Moshe as, as you know, the, the greatest prophet. And now it's like, well, there's this other guy. There's these other nations. There's this relationship that God has to these other people. And it throws a little bit of a wrench. I feel like a sense of vertigo almost, like destabilized. That you think you know so great, yeah. So so what so what do you, what do you do with that, Michal? What what then does Bilam and the story of 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 him add to your the, this take on on Bamidbar as a whole? I think for a lot of Jewish history, um, there was this this internal Jewish conversation, either intentionally or that was forced upon the Jews to kind of think of themselves very much as their own cohesive community with their own narration and zoom lens. But we live at a time in which that doesn't really exist anymore in most of our communities, right? We are citizens of countries. We are embedded in stories. We are asking ourselves, where should the lens be? What are we supposed to, to, to care for at this moment? And who are the protagonists of our story? Uh, and the protagonists of our stories are, are Jews uh, and non-Jews very often. So I actually think that um, Balak and, and Bil'am um, are are really, really significant. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you one additional thing that, that this, um, this parasha brings, because there's this actually really strong contrast, right? Between this, um, the mess, I would say the mess and the chaos of Bamidvar, right? So much of Bamidvar is basically the Jewish people, the Israelites um, complaining. And then you have this, you know, this prophet who eventually comes uh, and blesses um, the people of of Israel. And you know, Rabbi Joe, another thing that that I think this whole parasha is really significant, and I'm going to be dark here because we're going to embrace the whole darkness theme, is that so much of the... Bami- oh, I like. Well, you like the dark guy. Uh, so much of the Midvar, I think, is focused on like these internal murmurings and the people of Israel kind of like complaining against each other, fighting each other, competing for leadership, uh, blaming each other. And now we have this narrative that basically tells us there are actually external enemies out there. (laughs) There are people out there who are invested in cursing the Jewish people and bringing about their destruction, uh, like the king of of Moab, uh, Balak, and the prophet uh, Bil'am. And there's something about the the very destructive navel gazing and internal fighting that actually makes you unable to recognize and effectively prepare for those who are out there and who are seeking to, to you know, to harm the Jewish people. So, the, so if we're talking about the contemporary relevance of this parasha, I think there's something that that I don't have to draw, you know, connect the dots too much for us to 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 know that. Um, that there's a relationship between the way that we talk internally, between the way we fight with each other, and then with also recognizing that there's um, real enemies at the door. Wow, wow. That, that's strong, and I, I don't doubt for a moment that it's correct, but uh, 
I actually had a... Well, it's funny, given that I, when we started this episode with me saying, you know, how I am attracted to the, the, the darker, more sinister stuff, I've actually got a much more positive reading on, on, on this on this, uh, this, this episode than, than you do, in that the story of Bilam taking place from outside of the camp, right? We've been in the camp, for the whole of the book until now, and now suddenly we're, 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 we're situated somewhere else. What I've always felt is, is, is the following point, that when, if, you, if you're reading through Sefer Bamidbar for the previous 10 chapters, it's, it, it's disaster after disaster. It's, you know, the people complaining and Moshe and Ahar, Moshe, Miriam and Aharon's uh, Lashon Hara, and the terrible report of the spies, and Korach's rebellion, and the striking of the rock, and you're just thinking, oh, this is, this is terrible. And suddenly, Bilam stands up on a mountain, and he looks out at the Jewish people, and what does he say? He says, Matovu ohalecha Yaakov, mishkonotecha Yisrael, how beautiful, how good are your tents, O Jacob, how pleasant to your dwellings O Israel and for me there just seems to be such a correspondence between that way of looking at the book and how to like think about living a Jewish life when you're one of those people as we both are Michal who just you know live and breathe Jewish life 24-7 and you're so involved in every internal debate of the Jewish people whether it's Israel diaspora or religion or politics you can feel there's so much heat and so little light you know there's you know there's ignorance here there's arrogance there and it can be exhausting and it can be dispiriting and what Bilan teaches us is to actually take a step back and look at the broader picture and realize how much there is to be hugely grateful for well that's really beautiful and that's a very hopeful message to to conclude on and also to remind us to have this Ein Tova, right? This, this um, eye that seeks to find the good. Um, and hopefully that Ein Tova will not only help us find the good, but increase the good uh, in our people and um, in our society at large. Um, so th- yes, amen to that. And thank you everyone for joining us for our weekly parasha learning. The Downtown Josh podcast is a project of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life, OUJLIC and the Downtown Minyan. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation. Please join us to learn Torah every week.